Well, good morning, everybody. I invite you to open your Bible, if you will, to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 22. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Are you all glad to be in God's house today? Are you glad to be in his house today? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Would you rejoice today? How, who has a word of rejoicing today? Do you? Is the Lord working in your heart? Are you grateful and thankful to him? Uh, we have come to worship and adore him. Tell, uh, tell your neighbor, God's got a great word for you today. All right? All right, tell your other neighbor, God's got a great word for you today. All right? I invite you to open your Bible, look with me to the 22nd chapter, and we're going to begin with verse number 14 in just a moment today. And we're going to talk about lessons from the Lord's Supper. We're not participating and taking the Lord's Supper in the service, but we're going to learn about the Lord's Supper today in this service. And uh, we're going to look at this passage from the Gospels that we read this week. And uh, how are you doing on your reading plan? Are you following along? Great. Are you encouraged in the Scripture as you read it and as we read it together? You know, when I was a boy, I remember as a little child coming to worship services and uh, the watching believers participate in the Lord's Supper. I watched with heightened alertness as they took those little crackers and they ate them. And I wondered why I was denied this snack at church. And then they drank the juice and I wondered what it meant. And again, I wondered why I was denied this other part of the snack. You know what I'm talking about. It was part of that worship experience, watching my mom, watching my dad, as they sincerely, sincerely, with prayer, took the Lord's Supper. What does this mean? I was so excited after I'd been baptized and had put my faith in Christ to take my first communion and think about what would that be like. When I ate the bread, I thought, this is not very tasty. <laughs> when I drank the juice, I wanted more. But I thought about it sincerely. This had new meaning. The bread and the juice in my senses, in my taste, in my smell, in my thinking. What does this great supper mean? Passover week in Jerusalem was a busy week. It's the last week of our Lord's life. The last hours before his death. Before he would be arrested in the garden, taken through a mock river trial, and condemned to die. He sends his disciples into Jerusalem to secure a rented room there. 
it would, there would be no host other than the disciples hosting themselves. They were to make preparation for the Passover meal. Those preparations would include not only the room, not only all the things that you would need for a meal, but a roasted lamb, a unleavened bread, bread without any leavening in it, bitter herbs or vegetables, wine, salty water. And in this Passover, they would celebrate on the 14th day of Nisan, probably in our April, somewhere between 2.30 and 5.30, remembering, thinking upon the Lord's Supper on the Passover. It was a great feast for all of Israel to remember. It was sort of a culminating event to remember the rescue from slavery and the promise and power of God to take them out of Egypt and it was the birth of a nation. It was the promise fulfilled to the patriarchs. This was the importance and the context of Jesus establishing the Lord's Supper in the context of Passover. So if you look with me to the 22nd chapter of Luke, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's fulfilled? The Passover. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and we didn't give him thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, for the Son of Man will go away as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who is going to do it. Hmm. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to us through your word today. We're listening to you. I pray that we would set aside the things that would distract us. And I pray that we would focus on your word. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us of our sin and our sinfulness, our rebellion, our secret sin. 
Lord, I pray that today you would put within our heart a desire to obey you, to please you, and to know you. Lord, I pray that we would learn lessons that you want to teach us through this great supper that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sort of the outline of the, this sermon today, we'll think about the Lord's Supper and lessons that we learn from the Lord's Supper. Number one, it's a look backward. We look back because it's a remembrance. And so the Lord's Supper, tell your neighbor, it's a remembrance. Tell them now, it's a remembrance. So we look back. Secondly, it's a look inward. It's an examination. Tell your neighbor, it's an examination. Okay. And thirdly, it's a look forward. It's an expectancy or anticipation. Tell your neighbor, it's an anticipation. Amen. So let's think about it together today. Number one, it's a remembrance, isn't it? It is a look backward and a remembrance. It is the Passover is remembered. In verse number 15, he said, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, the night in which he was delivered, the night in which he's going to be arrested and delivered, Jesus spent time with his disciples remembering the Passover. The Passover, you know, was the final plague that took place in Egypt that helped release the children of Israel from captivity. You remember that the Passover is called that because that night an angel of death passes over. But the nation of Israel is spared death. This is what they did. They selected a lamb and that lamb was killed. They captured the blood in a basin, a bowl. And then they took a branch of hyssop and they painted the doorposts of their house and the lentil of their house. And then they went inside and ate the roasted lamb. No bone would be broken of the lamb. And the, there was bread, but there was no leaven in the bread. It's made with haste. There were bitter herbs reminding them of the bitterness of their experience. They have their shoes on and their bags packed and they're ready to leave. And the death angel passes over Egypt. And those that are underneath the blood in their homes are safe. But the firstborn dies in every household, not under the blood. And that night, Israel was delivered from Egypt. Pharaoh lets Israel leave. And not only do they leave, but the Egyptian people give them all kinds of gifts as they leave. So they plunder Egypt. And God rescues his people with a strong act of salvation by his power 
and the blood of the Lamb. It's in this context that Christ is remembering this with his disciples. And he's pointing toward its fulfillment. It is not only Passover remembered, but Christ's death is to be remembered in this supper. Verse number 19 says, He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, He took the cup after supper saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It's a remembrance. First of all, it's the remembrance of his body. And he said, as you, when you take this bread, you're remembering my body. Jesus was a real human being, real flesh and blood. And he's giving his life for us. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ, Christ absorbed the full penalty that we deserved and the transfer of our sins were laid on him and in his body as a human and the son of God, he was bearing our sin to Calvary and to pay for them in full. The lamb was a sin bearer. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus, in his body, bore our sin. But also his blood. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it says that Jesus is our Paschal Lamb. He is our Passover Lamb. Christ died so that we might be saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, Paul's reminding the church at Corinth, and this has been preserved for us in God's word, this very thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's all about remembering Jesus and what he did for us. His blood was poured out for us. It's not only his body, but it's blood. And so you say, well, why blood, Brother Tim? The Bible tells us all things are cleansed by blood. Blood is a cleansing agent. The blood, the life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no forgiveness for sin. That's why it, the blood is so held so sacredly that the Israelites did not eat meat with blood in it. They did not drink blood like other cultures. 
It's even the word from, from Acts 15 from the Jerusalem Council to Gentile believers, don't eat blood. Why? Because it's sacred. The life is in the blood. And Jesus, as a perfect man, without spot or blemish, no sin tainting him, his untainted blood cleanses us from all of our sin. There's only one cleansing agent for our sin, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And he died for us. And his life was drained from his body so that our sins can be forgiven. That is a glorious thought, isn't it? He died for us. He died for us. Christ died for our sins. His blood shed means his life was spent and he died in our place. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scripture, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin that left the crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Jesus did for all of us. Christ's love is also demonstrated here. His love for us is demonstrated. He died for us. He died for you and he died for me. Tell your neighbor, Christ died for you. Would you tell them? Christ died for you. Now, would you tell them this? And I want you to convince them. Christ loves you. Would you tell them? Do y'all believe that? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. God's love is amazing love for us. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrated his own love for us, toward us. And while we were yet sinners, what? Christ, what? Died for us us. How valuable, how valuable are you to God? You know, when I think about the price or the value of something, sometimes I look at something for sale and I look at it for a while. Maybe it's online or maybe it's in a store. And I go, do I really want to pay that much for that? Anybody else like that? Today I go and look at a dozen eggs. Do I really want to pay that much for a dozen eggs? But something greater, more significant, maybe a piece of property. Well, how do I know what the value of that is? And in the end, the value of something is what you're willing to pay for it. So if you have a piece of property or you have, Paulette, some jewelry, the value of that is what somebody's willing to pay for it. Right? What did God pay? What did Christ pay for you? He gave 
his son. And he died for you. You have been loved by God with an unbelievable, unimaginable, a love and a gift that surpasses anything you could imagine that the Son of God died for you. Whoo! That's great love. Amen? When you leave this building today, no matter what else you might think about, I want you to think about this. God has loved me and set his affections on me. That is an amazing thought. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hmm. Secondly, it's not just a look backward. It is a look inward. This is part of taking the Lord's table. Now, now in the upper room, we see something very curious that happens. Notice in verse number 21, Jesus says, But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. Well, that creates instant anxiety in the room. Verse 22 For the Son of Man will go away as it's been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. Verse 23, they began to argue among one another, discuss with each other which one it could be that was going to do it. We're told in some of the other Gospels that they said, is it it me? Could it be Could I be the one that betrays him? Could I be the one? Could it be me? Honestly, why do you think they asked that question? I think they asked that question because every one of those disciples knew it was within them to desert him, to betray him, to deny him. Peter objects later. He says, everybody else might deny you, but I'll never deny you. Jesus said, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. The disciples knew, and even there was the betrayer, this The son of perdition. But they're all alert to the sin that's in them. Even though they try to deny that it's there. It shows itself. They start arguing immediately after this high and holy moment about what place they're going to have in the kingdom. It's crazy. Sin crouches at the door in our hearts. Hymn writer Robert Robinson wrote, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Wow. When we have the Lord's Supper, we should examine our own hearts. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, listen to what Paul says. In verse number 27, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Brothers, therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. So when you gather together, you'll not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. He says, examine yourself. Are you eating in an unworthy manner? Meaning, are you unloving as you're taking the Lord's Supper? Are you self-serving? Are you trying to run ahead of others? Caring for yourself above others. Paul, when he begins to write to them, he's, he realizes this was what's taking place. They had connected with the Lord's Supper, something called an, a, a love feast, and people would bring their own meals to the feast, and the rich would bring more, and sometimes we'll sit with other cliques of other wealthier members, and the poor had very little to bring, so some have a bunch and others leave hungry, and it was not honoring to Christ. It was an unworthy manner. In chapter 11, verse number 18, he says, to begin with, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions, cliques, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. You're developing a pecking order inside the own fellowship of the church. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. One person's hungry another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter, Paul writes. Whew. They just got a little pastoral spanking is what they got. Because they weren't doing it right. And then Paul is reminding them at the heart of what it means. So he says, let each man examine his own self. What's your walk with God like? What's your walk with your brothers and sisters like? Are you making life and life all about you? It's a personal examination. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, examine yourself 
to see if you're in the faith. Now I'm telling you, you take the Lord's Supper, it brings judgment into your life. You, you need to examine yourself. Am I really a believer? Am I a real follower of Jesus Christ? I can't examine your life. You examine your life, yourself, your walk, your faith. It's not only a personal examination, but I'm telling you, the Lord's Supper, when we have the Lord's Supper together, stay with me, it is an examination of the community of faith as well, the church and the local church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Wow. Let's, let's just kind of look at that for a moment. Notice why it says the cup of blessing. What is the blessing here? It means the cup that we celebrate is the cup that's filled with grace. Actually, it's the word that we get the word Eucharist from. It's the cup of blessing. And he says that it's the cup of Eucharist, of blessing, of grace, of celebration of grace. There ought to be joy as we take the Lord's Supper because God's grace has been given to us. But it's not only the cup of blessing that we bless, that we celebrate and worship in. It's a sharing in the blood of Christ. The word sharing means a fellowship, a communion. That's where we get the word communion. The Lord's Supper is communion. We are fellowshipping together with the Lord in the Spirit and with one another in these elements as we remember Christ. And he's reminding them, you're not alone. You're in community. Verse 17, because there's one bread. That means there's one loaf of bread. Now, I don't know who started this Baptist tradition of breaking it into little bitty pieces. But the Lord's Supper was one loaf. And from one loaf, pinched off little pieces. Because we are many. But we're united to the one loaf. It's Christ and his church. And so the Lord's table helps us to think about community. Are we together as God's people? We share in one bread, he tells us. We're in communion. It's one cup. It's one loaf. Years ago, I read in a book by a pastor who talked about the church home where he grew up was in the hills of Kentucky. 
and they practiced one loaf and a common cup. And in the common cup, they would send one cup down the aisle and everybody would take a sip of the one common cup in the Lord's Supper. Now, in these COVID days, that's hard to believe, isn't it? And he said, in that small rural country church, in a small gathering of believers, he said, you took notice of who you were going to sit after. He said, Uncle Joe, who was always in church, sat close to the front, and he chewed tobacco. And in his white gray beard was always the tobacco stains that flowed down his beard. And he said, no wiping the edges would ever clean that off. I'd want to drink before Uncle Joe. The point here is we are one and we are connected to Jesus Christ. And the cross brings us together. And it's common ground. We are sinners and we're coming to a table of grace. And at that table, we are brothers and sisters. And we need to treat each other like brothers and sisters. What causes disunity in the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. First, cliques and selfishness. And we talked about that in chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. And how that they were coming together, but it wasn't for the good. And they were all bringing their own meal. And the rich sat with themselves and the poor sat there. And some had plenty and some had none. And he said, am I going to praise you in this? He said, absolutely not. Because it's all about your selfishness and not about the table of grace. Not only that, fleshly cravings. When you live immorally and you come to the table, it causes disunity in the church. He uses Israel as an example, how God brought them out after the Passover and he rescued them and saved them. But, but notice how they didn't live rightly. It says in verse number six, he says, now these things took place as an example for us that we not desire evil things as they did, not crave lust after evil things. Verse eight, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did in a single day and 23,000 people died. God's judgment came on them. He said, these things are written for our instruction. Not only fleshly cravings separate us and divide us and cause a break in the fellowship, but grumbling. Take note of this. Complaining and grumbling, backbiting, verse number 10, 
and don't grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroyer. These things happen to them as examples. They are written for our instruction on whom the end of ages have come. Do everything, it says in Scripture, Philippians 2.14, without grumbling or arguing. What did they argue and grumble about? Oh, listen, they were Baptists to the core. Soon as they get through the Red Sea, they're grumbling about what? Well, there's no good water here. There's no water. God won't provide us any water. Then they're grumbling. In Egypt, we had plenty of food, and now we don't have any food. And then they're grumbling about, we don't have any food, and God provides them manna. And then they're saying, this manna is all boring. We need something else. And God gives them meat. And then they gripe about the meat. And, and then they gripe about their leadership. And they gripe about Moses. And they gripe about Aaron. And there's any even griping within Moses' own family. And it brings judgment after judgment after judgment. And they come right to the brink of going into the promised land. And they grumble and fight and refuse to enter in. And he said, this was written for our instruction. Let no unhealthy language come out of your mouth, but only what's good for building up someone in the time of need. Listen, my friends, the most dangerous person in Bethel Church is the gossip and the slanderer and the tail bearer and people that make up stuff and cause more drama. You're sinning against God and against his church. Someone said gossip is what you say privately but you won't say publicly. Flattery is something you say publicly but you won't say Privately. The other thing is preferences. My preference above the good of the whole. Chapter 10, verse number 24. Some are struggling with a preference. They think they can go to the market and buy whatever and eat it. And yet it causes a great problem in the congregation if some people know that that meat might have been an animal offered to an idol, and so that's a stumbling block. And so he says, don't elevate your preferences, your liberty above the health of the congregation as a whole. Chapter 10, verse number 24, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Verse 31, for whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not, listen, verse 33, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many that they may be saved. Don't make it all about you and what you want. But about the community as a whole. The other thing is, what causes disunity, is when you devalue relationships. The relationship within the church family is of, of great importance. Your relationship with God, your relationship with the, in the Holy Spirit, your relationship with the Lord Jesus, your relationship with 
with your pastors and your relationship with your brothers and sisters in community. Jesus, remember what he's talked about, the importance of relationships? And he said, if you're presenting your offering before the altar, and remember your brother has somewhat against you, he said, leave your offering. Go first, be reconciled with your brother, then come and present your offering. What is it? Listen, let's don't burn our relationships. We live in a throwaway world where we throw away relationships, dispose of relationships, just toss them away and go on with our lives. Don't leave your church fellowship. Don't run off to some other church. Let's be a part of a community. Don't run off to another church because you like the entertainment of that church better. It meets your preferences better. It's people that's more like you. But value relationships. Think about all the one another's that are to be in the church. Pray for one another. Eat with one another. Encourage one another. Speak truth to one another. Sing with one another. Care for one another. Forgive one another. How do you do that outside of community? We're meant for that. <laughs> We're meant for that. Now listen, in community, sometimes your brothers or sisters are going to rub you wrong. Anybody ever been rubbed wrong? Oh, you don't have to raise your hand. It might have happened on the way to church. And sometimes I've rubbed people wrong. Anybody here ever rubbed people wrong? Yeah. But how do I learn to forgive? It's in community. Be patient with one another. Love one another. Do life with one another. The Holy Spirit ought to be the one that leads you if you're led to go and serve at another place, let it be because of the Holy Spirit's guidance. Hmm. Well, I know this preaching falls kind of painfully to all of us. But I'm telling you the truth. Aren't I? I know it got real quiet in here. My friends, the gospel should unite us. Finally. Ooh, I have to go real quick here. It's a look forward. It's a look forward. Listen to what Jesus said in verse number 16. After he'd given, he's, he's, verse 16, he says, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 15, he says, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer.
Verse 18. From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What do we look forward to? The ultimate climactic fulfillment of what the Passover was really all about. That God's people are rescued from slavery into the kingdom of God. And we have a brand new citizenship that's been opened up for us through Jesus Christ. Our citizenship's not this, we're in this world, it's in heaven from whom we wait for a savior. Not only that, we look forward to a new covenant celebrated by Christ. He opens up a new covenant. It's a new relationship. Reminds us what the prophet said about the coming of that new covenant. He says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. Well, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I'm their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's new birth. A new covenant. Not the word, the law over us, but the law in us. A new life only done by God. And finally, the kingdom of God will arrive. And he will drink that cup. And he will fellowship with us. And he will eat and drink with us, and it will be awesome. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How many of y'all believe Jesus Christ is coming again? He gave us this meal, so every time we eat it, we're looking toward the heavens and saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And he is coming. In the book of Revelation, chapter number 19, in verse number 7, Revelation 19, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself. And she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And he said, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said, these words of God are true. My friends, Christ Jesus is coming. And there's going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb. And we will all be gathered together. He is coming again. We will live with him. We will reign with him. We will rejoice with him in that, in that place, in that time. In that kingdom, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more disease. Can somebody say praise the Lord? There'll be no more arthritis. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more COVID. There'll be no more masks. There'll be no more worry. There'll be no more politics. Can somebody say praise the Lord? 
There'll be no more lies. There'll be no more drugs. There'll be none of that needed. There's no war in heaven, no divorce in heaven, no abuse in heaven. It will be glorious. And I can't wait. I was thinking about that this morning, and I was thinking... You know what? Not only will I feast with Christ, not only will I see the apostles, not only will I see the disciples. I got some questions for them. Not only will I see Old Testament saints, oh, it will be glorious. But I think I will see, I know, my grandparents that have gone on to glory. And I'll see loved ones from this fellowship who's passed on. And it will be glorious. I'll see my sister-in-law, Christy's sister, and it will be glorious. And I'll see children and parents connecting with one another around the marriage table of the Lamb. And there'll be reunion and restoration and relationships and rejoicing and hope realized in the marriage Supper of the Lamb. And Jesus said, I will drink it again with you. Hallelujah. What a great and awesome God we serve. These are wonderful lessons and truths from the Lord's Supper. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful. It's true. I it speaks to my heart today. It does. And Father, I know that you've given this for our instruction and our encouragement. If there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ, I pray that today they might be saved. And Lord, if there's somebody here that's wandered away and not living rightly, I pray that they would repent of their sin. Lord, I pray that every one of us would examine our own hearts and examine our community and how we're living in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand with me, would you please?